Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You've tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, episode 76, Watchmen. Welcome back, everybody, to the podcast. We're here with another show topic, and Dave and I are excited about doing an HBO show. Watchmen is one of those week-to-week shows that has become a rarity these days, and I enjoy watching it unfold bit by bit. Yeah, and, you know, I really liked the film. It, It wasn't a perfect film, and I wasn't a fan of the original graphic novel when i say i wasn't a fan it wasn't it's not like i read it and didn't like it i just never read it you you just weren't a devotee yes (laughs) but i'm really liking the series so far um you know we got a lot to talk about you you did read the graphic novel correct yeah it, it was a weird summer that summer i remember i was visiting a friend of mine who was way into dc comics and i was somewhat into dc comics as well but he said here are some things you need to read while you're here And he gave me The Walking Dead. This is long before the TV show (laughs) was out. And he gave me Watchmen. So it was weird how I feel like he was somewhat prescient in that these things would be, you know, something that would show up on television. But yeah, I I read it much longer ago than even the movie. So my mind's a little rusty, but I'm hoping I can bring in some comics knowledge to the discussion. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started because Watchmen is the HBO entrance into the superhero genre and it's based on the 1986-87 dc comics limited edition graphic novel by alan moore and dave gibbons it is executive produced showrun. he's the writer damon lindelof who we all know from lost and the leftovers and you know damon lindelof i guess we could argue he was really the first showrunner to really come to the public's attention yeah, he really connected with the fandom. They had a podcast, social media was just getting going, and of course, podcasting about TV shows was just getting started. Right. Now, the reintroduction of the Watchmen franchise has not come without controversy because co-creator Alan Moore wants nothing to do with the television series, which has put Damon Lindelof in kind of a tricky spot because... He really hoped that both writers would be on board and Dave Gibbons is all in. But from what I've read, it all goes back to the graphic novel and a dispute that he had with the publishing company. And it was something that, uh, you know, you'll retain the rights once it goes out of print. And of course, it's really popular. So, of course, it's going to stay in print. Yeah, never went out of print. (laughs) So I don't know that it's as much his dislike of it being made into a TV show, although I have read where he does say that. I I, I just think that, and I understand that he's the artist, but you signed a deal. Yeah, I'm kind of disappointed by that just because there's so many shows. In fact, one show that's very similar 
in theme to Watchmen is The Boys on Amazon. And Derek Robertson and Grant Morrison are way into that series. And in fact, a lot of the different adaptations of those comics. But yeah, you, you would hope that Alan Moore would have been on board with this one because it's just such a classic. Yeah. Now, Lindelof has stated that the series is a remix of the source material that aims to tell new stories in that original universe. And the series premiered October 20th, 2019 on HBO will comprise nine episodes. And as you said, you're not going to get them all at once, guys. You got to go week (laughs) by week. Well, and it's tricky too, because uh, we'll get into how this discussion is going to break down with the first two episodes as we are want to do. In fact, I don't even think there's going to be a spoiler zone in this podcast, but this is not a revisiting of the comic in any way, which makes it really tricky for those who haven't seen it. Cause when you call this almost a sequel to the comic. Yeah, I think you can certainly say that. And even the film, and we're not going to go into the film in any real detail, but again, it's almost a jumping off point. There are certainly characters that, that move among the different products, but as you said, it's really something new. Yeah. It's, it's like we're witnessing the aftermath of the occurrences in 1985 when the original comic was written. Right. Now, I think if you're here watching the show, listening to the podcast, you probably saw the 2009 film directed by Zack Snyder, which is set in an alternate history setting in 1985 at the height of the Cold War. And retired superheroes are investigating the death of one of their own when they discover this multi-layered conspiracy. And one of the cool things within this universe is that there's an anti-vigilante sentiment that sweeps the nation. There's a nationwide police strike. The Keene Act is passed in 1977, which declares all costumed adventuring and vigilantism illegal. Now, I want to go to costumed adventuring does that mean when kids (laughs) knock on my door tomorrow night i can call the cops yeah we're recording this the night before halloween and yeah i wonder if that would fall under the the keen act we do actually see references to keen in the hbo series as well right now most heroes stay retired but the comedian suppresses the watergate evidence richard nixon's elected to a third term yeah dr manhattan who's a scientist that remade his body into this godlike blue being helps the u.s win the vietnam war and rorschach stays in the vigilante game carrying out activities outside the law and and he of course wears that iconic mask that is certainly prevalent in the series we're going to talk about yeah in a very different way i love how they kind of bring forward some of the ideas of Watchmen, but they kind of create their own costumed adventures, as it were. (laughs) Right. Now, as Mike said, we're going to talk about the first two episodes. Those are the only two that have aired at this point. And episode 101 is titled, It's Summer and We're Running Out of Ice. Episode 102, Martial Feats of Comanche Horsemanship. And as we said, the comics events end in 1985 after Adrian Veidt, a.k.a. Osmondius, orchestrates an attack in New York City that results in millions of death. The series picks up 34 years later in 2019 Tulsa, Oklahoma, contemporary alternate universe in which police officers wear masks, superheroes have been banned due to their excessively violent methods, and you know, there's a lot of detail in the first two episodes that really has dropped almost in an offhanded way. 
yeah. that it's easy to miss and you kind of have to go back and in some cases put two and two together. And in this case, we can kind of draw on some details from the comic and the movie. Well, and, and that's the main question that I wanted to bring up in this discussion. Do you feel like, I mean, this is Damon Lindelof's style, certainly, to just sort of drop us in and trust the viewer to catch up. He he doesn't insult the intelligence of the audience by any stretch. But do you have to have read the comic to understand what's going on? Because after the first two episodes, I almost feel like you do. I mean, in some sense, maybe he's encouraging people to go back and find out what all these references are about. But at the same time, it's difficult to place myself in the shoes of someone who has no knowledge of the comic and whether or not they're just completely and utterly confused. Yeah. And and to your point, I think you do have to do a certain amount of research to get the most out of the series. Oh, yeah, for sure. Now, that might not mean going back and reading the graphic novel, but it at least means going to Google. Yeah. Reading some articles. (laughs) Right. But you have to be careful because- You don't want to be spoiled, but as Damon Lindelof has said, it's going to be a remix. So how can we really be spoiled? You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Especially since I think the best example is the fact that not a whole lot of people know who Adrian Veidt is because that's not even mentioned. I think he's even billed initially as the man at the country manor or something like that. So I think a lot of people were wondering what's going on with this guy and are probably still wondering that even going into episode three, unless you know the story. Right. And like always, you have to even be careful going to IMDB these days. So (laughs) now, you know, I've mentioned many times in the course of the seven years plus that we've been podcasting together that uh, I'm not a huge fan of excessive social commentary in my genre fair. I I just want to be entertained and the artist is free to do what he or she wants to do. And, And I think you can't help but miss the social commentary in Watchmen. But, you know, I don't feel like it's beating me over the head, even though I think some people might see it that way. To me, it's almost seamless, and it is integral to the story that Damon Lindelof's trying to tell. Well, they had to replace the Cold War of the original comic with something. And so I think in this case, race takes center stage. And I kind of like that it's based on a not well-known historical event of Black Wall Street in Tulsa. That really happened. Yes. And and that, again, is one of those things that I had to go look up just to find out. And the series opens as the 1921 Tulsa race riot is in full swing with white supremacists attacking African-Americans, African-American businesses, individuals on the ground and when you see the plane flying in and dropping bombs my first reaction is okay alternate history there's no way that really happened but it did happen yeah they dropped tnt on businesses yes and and as you said it was referred to as black wall street massacre and we see this young black child get separated from his parents who we presume die in the onslaught and then we get that great scene when, you know, he gets away, he, he hides in this trunk, but the vehicle he's riding in, I don't know if it gets hit by a bomb. Somehow we see it. It's, it's on its side. All the adults are dead, but the young boy is alive. And then he finds that infant just lying in the grass and, and he takes it to safety. Just, uh, just a, a really a heartbreaking scene, but 
again, it's just, it's such a difficult scene to watch because it's just so horrific. And as you said, the fact that it's true makes it even worse. Yeah. And it makes it less preachy. I think it's, it's sort of placing us in a context that, well, first of all, I love the concept of Redfordations, which is what they call the reparations that were made once Robert Redford became president. I thought that that was a really cool touch. But also you see this kid and you know we're going to see him again, but you have no idea what context we're going to see him in. So I think they played that really well, too, because it certainly was not predictable in any sense of that word. Right. And you mentioned the Redfordations and obviously reparations is a topic that's being talked about in real life. And here it's tied directly to descendants of this 1921 Black Wall Street massacre. Right. So we fast forward 98 years and we see masked officer Charlie Sutton making what appears to be a routine traffic stop. But we see how things have changed because when he approaches the vehicle and gets the guy's license and registration, he gets back into his car and we realize he doesn't have a weapon. He has to call in, go through a multi-layered step of protocols before they will electronically and remotely release the weapon in his car. At this point, though, the guy gets out of the truck and has an automatic weapon and shoots him. And again, you think the number of bullets that were fired into his car with him sitting in it, you'd think he's going to die, but he doesn't. But we're introduced to the 7th Cavalry, and that's Cavalry with a K, which is a white supremacist group that might as well be the Ku Klux Klan, but in this alternate universe, it's a modern incarnation. But do you think it's fair to say they're influenced by Rorschach? I mean, they all wear that mask. Oh, for sure. And of course, Rorschach being one of the Watchmen from the comic, I think the very final panel of Watchmen is him sending the true story to a conservative newspaper called The New Frontiersman which I think actually appears in the, in the TV show as well. So you kind of get the sense that Damon Lindelof took that and ran with it and decided that if Rorschach sent the true story to a conservative newspaper, then this white supremacist group got a hold of it somehow and made it their own sort of manifesto, I guess you could say. Right. But apparently the 7th Cavalry has been dormant for three years, during which time there has been peace. Now, we're introduced to all these characters and in a way we're just really just introduced to them. We don't learn a lot about each one. I, I guess maybe if you read the graphic novel and the comics, you would know that, but no, I don't, th- I actually don't think they do They're These are all characters that were being introduced for the first time in the TV show. Are you talking about the special costumed members of the police force or, or someone else? No, no, no. The masked, you know, like Red Scare, for instance. Yeah, they're all new. Oh, okay, cool. The well, mirror face guy. Yeah. <laughs> all those now, guys. Angela receives a call from someone who instructs her to find something at a countryside tree, which she clearly knows the location, heads to it, and she sees this elderly black man in a wheelchair below a lynched chief judge. And we'll talk a little bit about her relationship with Judd in a few minutes. He's played by Don Johnson, who we know from Miami Vice many years ago. And oh, really? Wow. I didn't even notice that. <laughs> yeah. And he, I thought he was really wonderful. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, certainly my fear was going to be, 
Don, we hardly got to know you, but it looks as if he's going to appear in flashback scenes. At least he does in, in episode two. Oh, good. <laughs> Robert Redford, as you mentioned, has been president for the past 30 years. And the reparations, which, as you said, known as Redfordations, have been given for past injustices. And there's a certain pejorativeness that the white supremacists use in conjunction with these Redfordations. You know, one of them comments to uh, Angela about her baker, you know, so is that the only way you got your business? Somebody giving you the money? So there is this tension, this racial tension that's going on in Tulsa, even in 2019. Now, the interesting scene that appears in this episode, I'm sorry, this is, I think, in episode two, is this flashback to a World War I incident in which the Germans drop leaflets on the African-American soldiers. And, and just to be clear, we're, we're kind of melding episodes one and two together yeah. thematically <laughs> and, and with the characters. But they're dropping these leaflets on the African-American soldiers. And one of the key questions it asks, what is democracy? And that's kind of a broader question that I think we're asked to examine as this series plays out. Not sure if the Germans actually intend for these soldiers to defect, but certainly putting doubt in their mind. And one of the great things that comes out of this is we see some of the soldiers grabbing the leaflets and reading them, but then we're taken back to that opening scene in the pilot where the young boy's father knows that the whole family is not going to be able to escape. So he makes sure that his his young child does. And he writes on the back of it, watch over this boy, folds it up and puts it in the kid's pocket. And we certainly see that note revisited later on in the story, still in 2019, that still exists, which is just chilling. Yeah. It makes you wonder what Will's path has been in the intervening years that he would, you know, seek out Angela and take out Judd and, and all the other things, or he claims he did anyway. <laughs> We're not sure how, but, but yeah, there's a lot of stuff to wonder about with regard to Will and his path from age five or six or however old he was to age 105 in 2019. Right. Now, the other thing that gets examined in the first two episodes, and I suspect throughout the whole series, is the role of the police force. And we hear reference to the White Knight. And what we learn is that it was a coordinated attack on Tulsa police officers by the 7th Cavalry. And it occurs three years before the start of the series. So that attack was carried out, changes were made, and there's been peace in the interim. And one of the changes, as you referenced earlier in the discussion, the officers now wear yellow masks to hide their identities. So they're wearing traditional police officer uniforms, but they've got these bright yellow, almost canary yellow masks that hide everything except their eyes. And in fact, it's against the rules to identify oneself as a police officer. It makes me think of the mask makes me think of the iconic comedian smiley face button with the blood on it that we know from Watchmen and also the doomsday clock. It's like that yellow seems to be a Watchmen color, you know? Yeah. 
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The other cool thing is when Angela catches wind of the shooting, I guess she gets some text that's in, you know, it's a message that she knows what it means. I forget what it was again. And she knows, okay, time to suit up, gear up. And her character is known as Sister Knight. And dude, nobody has a cooler outfit than Sister Knight. No, yeah, she definitely has the best one. And we get to see her put it on on, on occasion. And it looks like it's actually, you know, fairly easy to put together. <laughs> so I think it's interesting, the costumes, because, you know, Red Scare has just a ski mask. Like, I don't feel like they went to any kind of trouble to make it look super professional. Even the mirror face guy, whose name is Looking Glass, just looks like he bought that at the at the dollar store or something. <laughs> yeah, and I assume we're going to learn some backstory there as to why. Yeah. <laughs> why do you not want a cool superhero outfit? Now, maybe it's practical that it's still outlawed and that, you know, it's easy to just whip off a red ski mask and throw it away. And yeah, maybe. And in fact, the looking glass mask has the same effect with the shadows that glint off the the front of it. It almost looks like Rorschach in a way. And his mannerisms are very similar to Rorschach from both the movie and the comic. So I thought that was an interesting characterization as well. Red scare. I'm not sure how we pin him down, but it's an interesting character to include in a story that was originally a cold war story. So to have a Russian in the mix is kind of interesting, an ex-Soviet. Yeah, and, and you know, I was thinking, Damon Lindelof is not necessarily known for his action sequences. It's, it's not as if Lost yeah. had a lot of gunfights <laughs> and The Leftovers might have had a fist fight or two, but, but nothing really on the scale of what we're likely to see here. And, you know, once they learn the shooter's location, which is at this cattle ranch, Angela Judd and the other officers hunt him down and we get this shootout that results in the cavalry members deaths including the shooter but things are sort of out of time sequence through the first two episodes so they've got their shooter but now we know Judd is dead so who's in charge and I think there's even one little scene where Angela says to do something and somebody responds who put you in charge and he she said she says nobody right but that's still the end of the discussion <laughs> right and red scare who, who as she says the one wearing just the red ski mask it looks like he bought at target or something <laughs> yeah uh, he, he's sort of out of control wants immediate retribution they go to nixonville <laughs> and you gotta love the 
giant statue of Richard Nixon. And I think they threaten to tear it down, right? Yeah, we'll tear down your icon or whatever, the man you worship. Right. And I find it interesting as well that Nixonville, which is home to white supremacists, is a trailer park. Yeah. And I don't even know if we can say that it is home to a white supremacist. It might just be home to white trash. Okay. And so, because I think Angela is very regretful of this attack that ensues. She thinks it's not fair because half these people don't even belong to the 7th Cavalry. They're just being stereotyped. Well, that is the way it seems. I I guess we'll learn more. But regardless, Angela preaches restraint. So it's probably a good idea to talk about Detective Angela Abar, played by Regina King. As we said, she's known as Sister Knight when she's in uniform. I think it's safe to say she is the central character in this story. Yeah, which is an interesting choice. I kind of found that a little jarring at first because I'm so used to Watchmen being, you know, Dr. Manhattan and and Rorschach and all the other guys. So this is a very interesting, much more subtle play. And I think Regina King kills it. Right. And we learn that she is severely wounded during the white night assault. Obviously she pulls through and we do get that scene when Don Johnson comes to visit her in the hospital and it's clear they don't really know each other. And and that's their, really their, their first connection, but she retires And she runs a bakery and I've got quotation marks in the notes and I'm making air quotes. So we're not exactly (laughs) sure what it is she's doing there. It's her uh, superhero lair. (laughs) Exactly. Because when she has Will there as a prisoner and offers him coffee and he asks for sugar and she doesn't have any sugar. It's like, what kind of bakery is this? (laughs) Yeah. But we learned that she was born in Vietnam after it became a state. Yeah. The 51st state. The flag is even different. I like that. Right. And, you know, one of the first things we notice about Angela and her husband, Cal, is that they're raising these two, although I think there's three. It seems like we only see two, but but they're all white children. So my first thought is, all right, alternate history, they adopted these white children. But it does seem that we learn these are the children of an officer that was killed. Yeah, her partner. Right. During the white night. So, and it so, is three. There was one, there's an older child who's very stoic. And in fact, yes, he took care of his younger siblings right away after he learned his parents were killed. Right. So the younger two are still kind of innocent, but he's got to, he's got to be the man of the house. And Angela knows it too. I love the dynamic there. Oh, and I love when she tells him about what happened to the chief because the chief Uncle clearly, Judd, yeah. <laughs> clearly has a, a good relationship and the oldest child says to her, don't tell the other kids, right. let me handle it. And she's like, fine, just just a, re- a really wonderful scene. Now, episode two finds her successful search for the identity of the man in the wheelchair who, who goes by the name of Will. And he claims to have hanged Judd. And we get that earlier scene, do you think I can lift 200 pounds? And of course, he's sitting in the wheelchair at the time. He tries to give her a story about having psychic powers, but she does not buy it for one second. Even though we're dealing with superheroes here, it doesn't seem like it's on that level. In fact, the only person we hear about having any kind of powers is Dr. Manhattan. 
and he's on Mars. So it's not like we get to see him in action. So everyone seems to be very much like a Batman style superhero where it's just, you know, ingenuity and, and hand to hand combat. Right. And you mentioned Dr. Manhattan at this point, all we know is from that little TV snippet that's in the background that, as you said, he's on Mars and then somebody mentions him later. And then of course he, he comes up in the Adrian Veidt discussion that'll follow in a few minutes, but she takes that coffee cup and runs it through a DNA test, which is intended to determine whether or not you qualify for reparations. And we get the great reveal that this guy in the wheelchair, Will, is actually her grandfather. Yeah, I love how that unfolds, too, because she didn't take it through official channels. So she really used the automated system in a very clever way. And we learned that Will is, in fact, the boy in the opening scene of the series because he's still got the note. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you, you know, the little kiosk that she goes to for the DNA test. Yeah. The guy in the machine, he's a real guy. He, he yeah, actually, yeah. I didn't realize that. I happened to see yeah. that. In the- and he's not an actor. So I have to give him credit for, for doing a good job of being the, uh, the automated system. <laughs> right. But I was a little surprised that she is ready to bring him in even though she's just learned that he's her grandfather because she can't possibly think he got the chief up in that tree. Of course he had to have help and he won't tell her anything. He keeps repeating the mantra that I did it. I did it. And that he has skeletons in his closet. So I think he wants her to learn more about the true Judd. And we're still even at this point, two episodes in not quite sure what to believe with regard to will, with regard to Judd, and what Angela thinks of all this. Right. But you got to love his escape mode, right? Yeah. What the heck? <laughs> Somebody is looking out for him. <laughs> so she shoves him in the car and I think she's still messing with folding his wheelchair up when this airship comes overhead, drops down this giant magnet and just takes the car with it. Yeah, I'm wondering those people who are downloading this podcast and listening to it perhaps after episode three comes out already know the answer to this. So (laughs) they're enjoying our discomfort. (laughs) Now, we mentioned Chief Judd Crawford, played by Don Johnson. And one of the first things we we learn about him is that his men really do seem to like him. Yeah. And got to love the relationship he has with Angela's family. But there's that great scene at the family dinner and, and I know you're going to tell me that, oh, yeah, I acted in Oklahoma when I was in high school or college. I did not. Oh, okay. But we see him at a production of, and at the time, we just know, okay, it's Oklahoma. All the actors are black. Yeah. Okay, fine. But the next thing you know, he's being cajoled into singing something, and he starts singing some of Curly's songs from Oklahoma, a play he and his wife had attended the evening before. But as amusing as the scene is, it presages his symbolic death because, you know, in the play Oklahoma, Curly is dead. And the title of the episode relates to the fact that they don't know what to do with his body because it's summer and we're running out of ice. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. I knew it was a lyric or or a line from the play, but that was all I knew. Right. But, you know, you mentioned Will bringing up the idea that you might want to look into the chief's life 
a little deeper because everybody has skeletons in their closet. And she says, well, I didn't know you meant literally his closet because when she's at his wake at his house, she goes up to the bedroom and I'm not sure what she's actually looking for at that point, but she finds a KKK outfit hidden in a false closet, which now of course raises doubts about his true feelings. And are we supposed to think that he's really this closet racist or is this something that's been planted? Well, I think everything that precedes that scene makes us sympathetic to Judd and makes us trust him in the same way that Angela does. So my immediate reaction to seeing this KKK outfit is this is not what it seems. This is either a frame up or it's something that maybe helps him embed himself with the seventh cavalry, something like that. So I I don't, I'm not going to write Judd off right off the bat because I, I feel like too much trust has been built. All right. Now we mentioned Red Scare and his ski mask. He also has a Russian accent, which I guess is tied into his name and his backstory. Yeah. Right. Now played by Andrew Howard. You mentioned Looking Glass, who wears that form-fitting mirrored mask, played by Tim Blake Nelson. We see him conducting the interrogation of the suspect in the pod, which was frightening, fascinating. Very Rorschach-like, too. That's the thing. That's the exact same kind of interrogation with the deadpan delivery that Rorschach would have done. And Tim Blake Nelson, by the way, you would have pegged him as someone playing like the head of the 7th Cavalry, not someone who is actually on the police side of things. So very interesting casting. Right. And then we come to Lord of a Country Manor, which, as you said, is the way he's described. Adrian Veidt, played by Jeremy Irons. And my wife reluctantly sat down with me to watch the first episode based on the fact that Jeremy Irons is in it. Okay. (laughs) And she loved it. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, because this is the most cryptic part of the beginning because even like one of our interviews that we have on Den of Geek that we did during a press junket with editor-in-chief Mike Cicchini doing it, Jeremy Irons admitted that he didn't really know a lot about Watchmen going into it. And because all of his scenes were filmed separately, he still doesn't really know a lot about what happened elsewhere in the series. So this is a very interesting isolated plot line for now, for now. Yeah, And maybe the greatest reveal of the first two episodes, because we see him living at this unspecified country estate. He's referred to as the master by these two servants, one male, one female that appear like they're probably late twenties or so they're celebrating an anniversary, but we don't know what it's an anniversary of. Although we do in one scene, see a quick newspaper headline that apparently Adrian Veidt has been declared dead. And I wonder, is this the first anniversary of his, and I'll make an air quotes, death? Oh, that could be. There's a couple of different things it could be. But yeah, that's an interesting detail because he seems really focused on completing a five-act play called The Watchmaker's Son, right. which is a great nod to the original comic. Right. Now, we also see him on multiple occasions riding a white horse, and we all know what someone riding a white horse typically uh, means, and and whether or not he's going to turn out to be this white knight is still up in the air. But you mentioned the play, and, and basically the play that he has written and had his 
two servants act out for his own pleasure. He's an audience of one. It's basically Dr. Manhattan's origin story. Right. He was a watchmaker's son in the original comic. So Right. And then when the male servant is in this little box, and, and I guess it's supposed to simulate that you know, the experiment gone awry or on purpose or whatever. I'm like, that's really fire. Dude burned up. Yeah. He's, he went for a little realism there (laughs) and nobody seems concerned until we learn that they're clones. Yeah. They got plenty of extras. (laughs) Well, they might be automatons. I'm not sure because he did look like he was made of flesh. It's just that they're kind of acting very simpleton like to just be clones. So It'd be interesting to see like what they are really, if we ever find out. Right. So we know there are multiple copies of both the male and the female, very orphan blackish. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Now we're introduced to this Ralph Muller, just, just briefly, who appears to be this superhero in red, stops that shop robbery, extremely violent scene, by the way. Uh, And that, phrase his anger became mine and it seemed to me it was almost an attempt to speak for the superhero community to explain using a mask as an attempt to find out who i really am well and this is of course a scene from american hero story okay which is something that's been you know referred to everyone sitting down to watch this show it seems like. And so this, I have the feeling this is the first installment of many that we'll see. This character is known as hooded justice. He's from the original Minutemen, which was the precursor to the Watchmen of the comic. So you hear a lot of references to the Minutemen in the comic and the guy with the noose around his neck and the red hood, that's hooded justice. One of the original costumed vigilantes that there were. So I have the feeling we're going to see a lot of little vignettes from the original Minutemen. Now, do we get the idea of what the purpose of American Hero story is? What's the narrative here? Is this anti-superhero or? Well, maybe it depends on who's framing it, right? Because it's historical fiction. They're basically just dramatizing what happened back in the World War II to the Cold War era, which is the time frame that, that the original Watchmen comic happened in. So I have the feeling it's just bringing in the details of the comic to the current story. Okay. All right. Now, the last point I want to bring up, what the hell is up with the squids? <laughs> well, so, that's the other that's the other thing straight from the comic as well that they're bringing forward. Right. So, why do the squids fall out of the sky? Is it a transdimensional attack staged by the government? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's a conspiracy theory, I think. Right. Because the question, why would the government do this? Uh, Apparently, it's now occurring over four cities. Scientists are baffled, or so the media reports. Yeah, and obviously, those of you who have read the comic know that this is Adrian Veidt's doing, because in the comic, Adrian Veidt, also known as Ozymandias, tried to basically unite the Soviets and the United States by giving them a common enemy, which was a giant squid, to defeat and... This is just the remnants of (laughs) what he did back in 1985, presumably. Okay. Well, listen, you know, I really like the movie, but I like the TV show so much more. Yeah. I mean, Damon Lindelof can use this as a playground. And I love that it's on HBO too, because it really has that flavor. I have to wonder how HBO got a hold of this instead of like DC Universe or someplace like that. But thank goodness, right? Because I think this is definitely 
got the flavor of an HBO show, and I think it's got the popularity of an HBO show as well. Okay, well, you know, that's a perfect segue uh, to end this discussion and end the podcast because you mentioned HBO 2, and I'm thinking like HBO and the number two. No, (laughs) T-O-O. Yeah, so uh, what do we have up next week, Mike? Oh, yes, and and I mentioned DC Universe because we're about to embark on the streaming service wars because, of course, as many of you know, up until now, it's been Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon, and that was pretty much it. But now, slowly but surely, as the small fries like CBS All Access and places like that crop up, now it's time for the big guns. Apple TV+, Plus, Disney+, Plus, HBO Max are coming on the scene, and they can actually give Netflix a run for its money. So we're going to talk about some of the shows that we found on those services and what we can look forward to, what is intriguing to us, and whether or not we feel these services are worth it because now people are going to have to start making decisions. What do I spend my money on? So we're calling it the streaming service wars discussion topic. All right. No longer Netflix and chill. It's now Netflix and get out your wallet. (laughs) That's right. So definitely some controversy to discuss as well as our super six. So it's kind of like a combination of our old school season one of sci-fi fidelity discussion topics combined with our super six. So that's going to be fun next Wednesday. But that's going to be it for this episode of Sci-Fi Fidelity. Keep the discussion going on social media. You can follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. And we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in the meantime, we'd love it if you could rate and review the podcast wherever you access it. Be sure to send us your suggestions for future topics, either on social media or in an email to sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.